last remember when I preached, it was the weekend after Christmas, and there was about the same number of people here. And so uh, I have had, uh, actually raise your hand if you pointed out to me that there's very few people. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And it's a running joke now, so now you know if you're not going to show up, it's probably because I'm preaching, but that's okay. But we will, I know, right? Come on. Thanks. Thanks for the sympathy. Well, uh, oh, nice. Who knows, without looking at your bulletin, what the uh, title of our series is? Shout it out. Uh, that's the topic of our series. Say it louder. Centrifugal Church, anyone else? Can you say it? Yeah. Let's all say this together. Okay, ready? Centrifugal. One more time. Centrifugal. Sen. Trift. Eagle. Centrifugal. We're working on some people still. Now, I say that partially because when I first heard about this, I was extremely skeptical. And Carrie was the one who first told me about this idea for a title of a series, and I was like, hmm. Partially because I didn't quite know what the word meant. And then also partially because I was a lot like all of you, that I couldn't say the word. But I say this because... Thank you, Robert, for laughing at my joke. (laughs) I say this because it's more than a fancy word. We chose this title for this series because we want our church to be a centrifugal church. And so as we, look at our, as we look at our passage today, I've titled it 101. I figured that the full title was going to be there, so it would be Centrifugal Church 101, because in Acts 6 through 8, it really lays out three principles that the early church uh, have that make them a centrifugal church. So as we go forward and as we understand more than just how to say this word, I want us to understand what it means for us, too, to be a centrifugal church. So we're going to look at three principles that we draw from this very lengthy passage today. So if you could, bow with me in prayer one more time, and then we'll jump in. Father, I thank you for this church family, Lord. For those who are here today, I thank you, and I thank you that uh, we can study your word together, Lord. Father, I do ask that... um, What I preach would be my heart, that it would be your words coming through me, that I would not get distracted by anything, Lord, and that that would be true also of all the the people that are here, Lord, that we'd be able to focus on what you have for us uh, today, Lord. I thank you um, for the body of Christ. In your name I pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't made your way there already, if you could, turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And we're going to jump right in because we do have three whole chapters to cover. And so what we find in the beginning of Acts chapter 6 is that the uncontrollable church, uh, uncontrollable growth of the church that we saw last week has posed a problem. As we see in verse 1, it says, Now in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, arose against the Hebrews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And if you remember last week, we saw as um, Carrie unpacked Ananias and Sapphira, and we saw that there the church quickly uh, put to rest corruption that could have taken over the church. 
And then in the end of chapter 5, the, those last few verses that Carlos read were at the tail end of the um, persecution that Peter and John were facing. And with those two attacks thwarted, the, the devil goes to one of his favorite attacks. An attack that he not just uses in the early church, but in a lot of churches. Division. He tries to divide the church, pitting one people group, the Hellenist Jews, against another, the, the Hebrew Jews. Trying to split the church in half. And so often as Satan does, he does it on the lines of ethnic diversity. And so what we see immediately is that uh, the apostles, just as uh, Peter quickly put to rest this corruption, Peter and the other apostles need to quickly act. There's immediate action required. And so if we look in uh, verse 3, it says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. They know that to uh, stop the church from becoming disunified, that they need to immediately put a plan into action. And thankfully, as Carlos read too, the result is that this pleased the whole gathering. We meet these seven men who are wise and full of the Spirit, and uh, as a result, the uh, widows no longer are being neglected, and the unity of the church is preserved. And as a result, in verse 7, we again see these familiar words, that the church continued to flourish and to grow. And so as we look at this problem and solution, we see the first principle that is required uh, of what, is, what makes them a centrifugal church. See, for there to be, as the definition says, a force that moves from the center outward, the first key is that there needs to be a unified center. There needs to be a center that is strong, uh, and that is why division was so uh, big of an issue. You see, it's not purely a unity within the body, but it's a unity with the body, with Jesus Christ. And He is the core. Disunity uh, threatened uh, to remove Christ as the center. If Satan had have gotten a foothold and divided the church, they would have been so preoccupied with figuring this self-issue out that they would have never been able to move outwards. And so what we see is what is first required is for a church to be maintained maintaining their core, maintaining Christ as their center. We can't let anything get in the way of that unity. And I say this because what we see next in our passage is that these trials that they faced, which were strengthening their unity, strengthening their core, uh, were preparing the church for a next step. You see, with the center strong, with them uh, strong against the ploys of the devil, we see uh, that the church is thrust into a new stage. So if you look with me at the rest of chapter 6, uh, one of these seven men that was just mentioned, Stephen, was seized by the Pharisees. You see, uh, for the Pharisees, the gospel was not okay. They did not recognize it, but as you see in verse uh, 10, that it says they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he, Stephen, was speaking. They were unable to overcome his spirit-filled living, and so what they did was resort to lies. They arrested him on a charge of speaking against the, the temple, a charge that was punishable by death. And so, while there's so many things that we could see here, what we must understand is that Stephen, in the beginning of chapter 7, goes into a full defense of the gospel. 
And as you can see in your Bible, as with mine, it is this entire page. We don't have time to cover all of that. So if you would, jump over to verse uh, 51, and I'll kind of explain the gist of what he's saying. See, Stephen's platform for his speech is the Old Testament. And he uses the figures and the text uh, that the Pharisees so respect, and he turns it on their head, basically pointing out to them that they had completely twisted what God had intended for them as his people. And if you look in verse uh, 51, he concludes by saying this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Instead of going on trial himself, Stephen turns it around and puts them on trial. He says, you failed from the beginning. You had God's laws and you uh, disregarded them. You had the prophets given by God and you misunderstood them. And lastly and most importantly, you betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus Christ. It's not me who should be on trial, but it is you. And um, understandably, in verse 54, they are enraged. It says that they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen's not done, because then it says in verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If him blaspheming the temple, speaking against the temple that they held so sacred, saying that there was somebody on the throne with God, Jesus Christ standing there at God's right hand, that was too much. And so what we see at the end of chapter 6 is that they just wanted him to be quiet. They just wanted to shut up this false teaching that he was saying. But by the end of chapter 7, we see that they will accept nothing less than his death. They will stop at nothing to have him silenced forever. And so what we see in the final verses of chapter 7 is his brutal stoning. But as we look at this idea of a centrifugal church, Stephen plays an essential role for two reasons. In his speech, Stephen overtly divides Christianity with their ties from Judaism. He completely severs the connection that they once had. He completely disregards the temple and their rules so that Christianity now, in essence, is free. It's not a bad thing. He has completely freed Christianity and he has freed the gospel from the temple. And why this is so important is because now the church, instead of partially being unified by Jews, is now solely unified in Jesus Christ. And then the second thing that we see is that Stephen's martyrdom triggers an immediate persecution. In verse 58, we see that uh, there's this guy named Saul who's standing there. And he's so infuriated, and he already can't believe what these uh, Christians are believing. Uh, but when he hears these lies that Stephen says, it puts him over the top. 
and he launches into an immediate persecution of all Christians. It says he rounded them up and dragged them. It uses the word ravaged them. He will stop at nothing to destroy them. And as a result, what we see in the beginning of verse or the beginning of chapter eight is that they were scattered through all the regions of Judea and Samaria. But I don't just want to stop there and have you naturally conclude that if our center is Christ, if our center uh, we have a centrifugal church that his center is strong, that we immediately must be ready for persecution. I don't just want that to be the ending point because look at what it says in chapter eight, verse four. Or chapter 8, yes, chapter 8, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They were not scattered and, and just dissolved. They were not scattered and gave up, but they were scattered and they began to preach the word. What we see here is that they were a centrifugal church because when they were met with this next phase, when they were met with persecution, when they were met with something that forced them outwards, that they continued to go out in the name of Jesus. They went out, and it says in verse 1, they went out to Judea and... What does it say? Does anyone see it in verse 1? They went out to Judea and Samaria. What does Acts 1.8 say that we started this uh, entire series with? That you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. It took the death of Stephen to enact this next step. It is what was required for the church to spread to the next level. And we need to understand that for us to be a centrifugal church, our center needs to be intact. And when it's intact, we need to be ready to say, okay, God, we're going to go out. It might not be persecution. It could be. We could be ridiculed, hated. But if our center is intact, we need to be ready for God to take us out, to take us to the next level. Where is he planning on on taking us as a church? Where is he planning on taking us to the next level? But what we have to realize when we say that, we must first know that our, our core, that we are centered in Jesus Christ, that we as a church and as individuals are united in Jesus Christ. And it's that looking outwards that characterizes the last section. In the fifth verse of chapter 8, we encounter Philip. You remember he was mentioned at the beginning of uh, chapter 6, and he was the second of these seven men who were appointed uh, to care for the widows. And Philip, from now on, we are going to see the ministry to the Samaritans through the lens of Philip's ministry. So in verse 5, we see that he being empowered by the Spirit having been commissioned by the apostles, moves and pairs uh, his amazing message with miraculous signs and begins to spread the word to the people of Samaria. And Luke writes in verse uh, 6 that the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. And that they believe, it says in verse 8, that there was much joy in the city. Though it's not overtly stated, it's clear that all of the people began to take notice. That the force moving outward uh, was uh, taking root in the Samaritans. And what we see, though it doesn't overtly say it, is that Philip was obviously preaching baptism. Because the next scene that we see in verse 12 tells us that many were baptized. 
And it's a scene for much celebration and, and for us much encouragement. Because we see that the gospel was being shared. But more than that, we see again that Luke is specifically pointing out that with the spread of the church, that, that they were being a centrifugal church, that the gospel was going out. He's giving us a direct example. It's moving onward and outward beyond Jerusalem, uh, further on to the Samaritans. Yet in the midst of this spirit-filled expansion, we see uh, this juxtaposed with a character named Simon. We see, and we don't doubt his belief, we don't doubt uh, his baptism, but we see that he is just as much obsessed with Paul, uh, Philip's power as he is with Philip's gospel. But we're just left at that. And we have to move on, because if you look with me in verse 14 through 17, we have the uh, biggest part of our passage that we have to get today. There in verse 14 it says this, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is an incredibly dangerous set of verses. Incredibly dangerous and we need to get this straight. It has been widely used to imply that there are various levels of the Spirit. That uh, through this that some believers will receive the Spirit but others won't. That there's only certain people that can pray to help you receive the Spirit. And I want to set something straight. We as a church do not believe that. Good News Bible Church, your pastors, your elders believe that when you believe that Christ died for your sins, that you stop heading in the direction of sin and death and you reorient your life to Christ and you begin to live in life, that you immediately receive the Holy Spirit and you are welcomed into the body of Christ. But then what do we do about this passage? How do we deal with this? Because it seems to contradict what I just said. And it does, completely. Because it's an exception. An exception for the sake of the church. You see, the spread of the gospel was natural to go to the Samaritans next, yet there was still a past there. You see, the Samaritans were descendants of Jews who had married Gentiles, and so in essence, in the eyes of Jewish people, they were mutts. And if you've studied the Gospels or looked at the Gospels, you'll see that there is a lot of bad blood between them. Yet, before he left, Christ called the apostles and the church as a whole to reach these people. And despite Philip's faithfulness, they're still threatened again to be this disunity. And so what we see is a delay in the receiving of the Holy Spirit so that God can intervene and illustrate a greater unity within the church. So that Peter and John can pray over the believers as representatives of the church as a whole that up until this point was uh, made up of Jews. Demonstrating that from this point forth that there is a greater unity found in Christ Jesus. 
this anomaly, this exception is so that all might know that in Christ Jesus there is a unity that supersedes all barriers, whether social, economic, physical, racial. It is a powerful scene because we know that we have a God who is willing to step in and make an exception to the rule that we all know and hold to be true so that he might show that from this point forward that there is unity in Jesus Christ. And it is a powerful, powerful scene. And yet again, at the end of it, we meet this guy, Simon. In verse 18, as the the apostles are laying their hands on the believers and they are uh, praying for them to receive the Holy Spirit, uh, Simon sees their power and immediately goes back to his old ways. He is obsessed with this power because formerly he was a magician. And people considered his power to be an extension of God's. And so when he sees this, he knows that this is the next level. And foolishly, as it says there, he tried to ask if he could purchase this ability. Purchase the ability to give the Spirit. What we see is that Simon's request was not Spirit-filled as as what was going on, but it was self-filled. And we realize that he was more about the gift than he was about the gospel. And what we see as a result is that his foolishness results in Peter's such strong rebuke that it stops one step short of the same kind of uh, pronunciation that was given over Ananias. And Simon is somewhat left there. Scholars are divided on whether he ended up repenting or not. But the point is this. As we look at a centrifugal church, we see that where uh, there is a deeper unity and there is a deeper growth, it is filled with movement of the Spirit. And the one action that we see that is not contributing to that is not filled with the Spirit. See, when Christ is our center, when our every action and movement outward is done through the Spirit, then we must realize that to be a centrifugal church, we must not lose sight of that. We must move forward in the Holy Spirit. The church was a centrifugal church because they never lost sight of the fact that all of their action must be formed in the Spirit. And our final verses of our passage also affirm that. Uh, in the start of the, uh, in the, that this is the start of the next chapter of the church. See, verse 25 at the end of this section says, uh, again, that we have that familiar words, the summary that the church continued to grow. That with this greater unity strengthened, that the apostles themselves reached out to the Samaritans. And then what we find in verses 26 through 40 is another account of Philip going out onto a deserted road and he reaches out and eventually uh, shares the gospel to uh, an Ethiopian eunuch who had formerly been practicing Judaism. You might say, this seems like overkill. Why are you even telling us this? Why do we need another example? I think it's because Luke is uh, showing us that this is the new normal for the church. That this expansion, this growth, this uh, force going outwards, the church being a centrifugal church, is now what is normal. There's still things going on in Jerusalem in the center, but the church now is characterized as recognized as one that is going out and growing. But it solidifies this final point about being a centrifugal church. When we get our core intact, when we act as one, uh, unified in Christ, putting all else aside, 
then our actions must continue to be formed by the Spirit. That is only when we can continue to move forward. If we ever lose sight of that, that is when something stops. When we look in chapter, uh, in, the, in the middle of chapter 8, the only time that we don't see the Spirit moving is when Simon is not focused on Christ. And as we look at this passage, I hope that it reminds us more than anything that is the gospel that unifies us. This is the most potent reminder that to be a centrifugal church, we must be unified in Christ Jesus and in nothing else. It's not just true of the early church. The apostles who witnessed Christ's ascension was true of us. And how much more for us. They witnessed Christ. They were given directly by Christ. And and yet they still needed to constantly center themselves in Christ. How much more for us who are 2,000 years later. The gospel, Jesus Christ is the push-off, the start. The, the, the start of the race, in essence. We can't go anywhere unless we have that in place first. We know this is true, but how often uh, do we really practice it? We preach this week in and week out that we are unified in Christ, but how often do we live something different? Paul later, in, in, Paul later writes... Um, For in Christ Jesus there is neither Jew nor Greek, free nor slave, rich nor poor. Do we really believe that and do we really live that out? That in Jesus Christ there is neither hipster or Hispanic, Puerto Rican nor Mexican, Canadian, American, Japanese, Guatemalan, white collar, blue collar. Do we really believe that uh, in Christ that these labels are second and Christ is first. How often do we characterize us ourselves first as, for me, I'm first Canadian. I'm first left-handed. I'm first Ellie's husband. I'm first a member of Good News Bible Church. I'm first the children's director. If we're doing any of that, we're getting it wrong. We are first in Christ. And everything else follows that. But how often do we come in on a Sunday with other stuff on our minds? Christ is our second. How often do we come in with our own thoughts? We're ready to pick apart the host. We're ready to uh, judge those in worship. We're ready to dissect the sermon when we're failing to realize what Christ might have for us. How often are we participating in a ministry? A ministry here at this church. And we're so more focused on enacting what we think is needed for this ministry than what God needs for this ministry. And we're so stuck with something else as our center instead of Christ that we're unable to be a centrifugal church. We're unable to move out because we don't have the center intact. I had Carlos read the the last verses of chapter 5 because it sums this up perfectly. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. If we are about anything other than Christ, if our center is anything else, we may as well give up now. We're not going to go anywhere. If we claim to be something else first and Christ second... If even in our ministries we have good intentions, but Christ is not first, we can give up now. 
Because if the offender is not Christ, we're not going to go anywhere. But look at the flip side of what that verse says. But if it is of God, it will not be able to be stopped. If Christ is our center, if we are being a centrifugal church with Christ as our center, then we will naturally move outwards. God only uh, allowed for the church to go through this suffering, to go through being scattered once they were ready. But he knew that it was their time. And when we are centered in Christ, it will so too be our time to move out. Because if Christ is our center, reaching out to our community, reaching out through ministries, reaching out to the people around us, that is the natural next step. That's what it means for us to be a centrifugal church. We saw that Stephen's martyrdom freed the church and allowed it to run rampant on the world. If Christ is our center, we will uh, too be able to go out into the world. And finally, when God does take us there as a church, we need to constantly remember that we can never lose sight of the fact that we are to be in the Holy Spirit's uh, will for our lives as we work. That we need to be working through His power. That any time that we try to separate ourselves from that, do something that is ours, not His, that we're going to start going the wrong direction. We need to remember that all that Philip did, all that Peter did, all that John did, all the converts were in and spirit-filled. It says it over and over again in a passage. But the one act that we see going the other way is when uh, Simon was not filled with the Spirit. We need to remember that as we go, that we must constantly be filled with the Spirit and constantly coming back to that. Are we as a church ready for what uh, God would have for us? What's stopping us from taking it to that next level? Stopping us from being completely centered on Christ? To having that unified core? If you're part of a ministry, what is distracting you from uh, Christ's heart for that ministry? What judgments or, or unforgiveness are keeping you from being able to see what God would have for the people in that ministry so that you can go from there and move out? Are we too caught up often in what we think good news needs so that we can't see what God knows good news needs? I want us to stop and and take time this week to think about that. Whether you're in prayer, whether you're journaling, whatever you do, think about that. What is stopping me and our church from having Christ first? Because that is the key to going out. The encouraging thing is that God, I know, it is so clear that He has great things in store for us. It is clear that He wants to move out. We first have to have that center intact. Or else we'll constantly be stuck facing the problems of Acts chapter 6 and we'll never be able to move forward and get to Acts chapter 8. And that's one of the reasons that we come together in communion. Because uh, communion is an outward and very visible sign of being able to say we are unified in Christ Jesus. That we are unified together as a body, but we are more than that unified because we are His body. And Pastor Ralph's going to come up in a few minutes uh, and lead us in communion. But I ask that we would take a minute right now. I ask that we would take a minute and focus our hearts, prepare our hearts for communion. 
And as we do uh, pray and, and talk to God and ask God, what is it maybe that is stopping me from having Christ as my center? Why am I unable to go out? What is that thing that is hindering my all, my center from being Jesus Christ? Let's take a minute and bow our heads.